0: All right, we're closed.
1: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back episode 41 now of sorry we're closed and we have and again i always tell people that i I don't do this podcast as a baseball podcast because my whole life was baseball and i wanted to be able to go a bunch of different directions with with where i'm kind of going in my own life now so we have another guy on we have a guy here now a friend of mine now i I consider a friend at least a twitter friend right Uh, on the podcast a guy by the name of larry mcdonald larry welcome to the show um now I'll tell a little about the, a little, little about you, Larry. Uh, you 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 wrote the book "Colossal Failure of Common Sense." Then uh, this was about your days at Lehman Brothers, which if yes. if, if I have some young listeners out there who don't know what Lehman Brothers is, it's a bank that failed in the 2008 um, you know housing crisis. And way back, I don't know how many years ago now, maybe two three years ago now, my father. Gave me. He's like Pat. You got to read this book. This is this is a phenomenal book. You know, it's about the 08 crisis and all of these things. So I was like, oh, def- definitely. And then, for those of you who don't know, I'm also huge into the stock market and all that stuff. So uh, I read it, and then immediately looked you up on Twitter. I've been following you ever since. So Larry, welcome to the show.
0: Thank you, Pat. And um, when we started to process the book, uh, my co writer was Patrick Robinson, who wrote Lone Survivor about the Navy SEALs in Afghanistan. And um what I liked about the process is we started to 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 get into the book and I said, Patrick, do you know anything about finance? I and mean, he's kind of a, a navy fiction writer, but he did the famous book with Marcus Luttrell, yeah. uh Lone Survivor, and it became a it became a movie with Mark Wahlberg. And he said, Lawrence, I thought a bond was something out of a Roger Moore movie. <laughs> so, <laughs> so so he what's fascinating about the book is he learned finance. As we went through, and uh, I think that's what made it such a good read. It's it's now in 12 languages. I tell my wife once a month, as a former Lehman trader, I say, honey, if we sell a million books, we'll break even even on our Lehman stock. (laughs) 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 And it's in in a lot of languages now. It's all sold about 650,000 copies. But special thanks to Patrick Robinson and special thanks to your dad for recommending it to you.
1: Yes, special thanks to Papa Light out there who is uh, very excited that you're on the show uh, and still has no clue why you would ever agree to it. Uh, but, <laughs> but I appreciate you coming on. I saw I didn't know you were a Red Sox fan until recently through Twitter. And then, I, like I told you, I looked at you up on Wikipedia. saw that you were born in Lowell, Mass. And that is where I got my start. I was in Lowell, the Lowell Spinners. What a, what spinners. a, oh what a place. And I... I was just telling you, I was on this show uh, this past week. I was with um, a buddy of mine He's in the music industry. And we were—I was telling a story about Lowell, Massachusetts. I don't know what the name of the bar is, and I don't know if you frequent the bars in Lowell, Massachusetts. But I went to the bar, and there were some of the biggest fights I have ever seen in my entire life. I refused to ever go back. I saw a girl do a flying headbutt at a guy. And I was like, I'm a 21 year old kid coming from you know you know Monmouth University, a private school, whatever. Like, and I see a flying headbutt. I was like, Yeah, I'll pay my tab. I'm gonna get out of here, guys. It was crazy town, but. A phenomenal beer selection. Is there a beer works there, or some type of uh, place close by the field that we go to all the time to test? Yes,
0: you know? yeah. I remember. It, it really had it's a comment. It's a, it's, a, it's a working class town for sure. And well, uh, that's what I like about our career paths. Okay, you know, we kind of. Uh, I graduated from UMass and came up. And uh, I remember my favorite line in all the movies Wall Street. Michael Douglas said, uh, "You know." he just Give me three guys that are poor, smart, and hungry. And uh, you know, coming out of UMass, I had to kind of make it onto Wall Street through a different path, which we can get into. And uh, you know, for you to make it to from for low spinners, spinners to, the, to the big leagues, it's incredible. Oh, I mean, yeah, I think <laughs> it, it, it is
1: different. And mm-hmm. baseball, and I the reason I've, I've told you before the show that I've been uh, kind of a uh, stock market geek and so on. Is when I was playing baseball, I was uh, I was kind of kin towards the end of my career, I couldn't throw a strike anymore. This is post Red Sox. This is I'm out in Seattle, and I remember talking to him about it, my dad about it, and being like, you know, maybe I should find another way to make some money because who knows how long this was, how much longer this will last. And we were talking about the stock market, and I had money saved up, but like some of it was in like a bank, which I now realize that putting your money in a savings account does absolutely nothing for you. Um, I didn't know that at the time, but, uh, and now I just started getting into it. And this is one of the books I read a bunch of uh, read books on Peter Lynch. I got a whole, whole gamut over there of, of, of books that I've read now. Uh, and I always found it so interesting and something that my dad still, I think wants me to try to get, I just got my degree and he wants me to go, uh, try to see if I can start working on wall street, which I don't want to do, but it was the wall street had that, like that 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 competition that there's there's something there that you get as a professional athlete that it's tough to find elsewhere when you get out of that world that that constantly trying to get better than the day prior like as a reliever in baseball like it was you pitched well today great you can go out and celebrate the next day you got to be ready to go again you start zero again there is no oh you did great yesterday now you're just as good as your last thing and wall street kind of has that same feel to it so that was one of the things that drew me to it Are you, can you, yes. is, is, is am i right on that
0: Oh, 100%. I mean, as a trader, uh, you know, I started off in a kind of a more in the research retail part of the business retail. Yeah, As a financial advisor on Philadelphia Cape Cod. But then once you get up into the big leagues, it's more, it's become more and more like that. And um, I remember nights, you know, if your P&L uh, is it moves a little too much, you lose your job. So uh, as a prop trader, what we did back then is, is today, it's much more, you, you facilitate clients, so if a client comes in to buy some bonds or sell some bonds, you have to provide that liquidity for them. But back before the financial crisis, they let the traders uh, really play with a kind of a back uh, pack of capital, and it was like, what's called a proprietary trading. Mm. And it got, it got pretty crazy back then where traders on Wall Street to make most of their year's income by trading with the house's money. Uh, but there's nothing like walking home, um, you know, up you know central, over to Central Park South and, you know, losing a couple million dollars a day or making five or six million dollars a day. And that feeling of like, you know, that razor's edge is there every day. Uh, and you, you really have to perform or else you get shown the door. I mean, it seems like the cutthroat nature of it
1: and it was, it was similar to baseball, but I almost feels like it's even bigger than baseball because in baseball, like you have your, you have your ups and downs. Everyone knows through 162 games season, you're going to be up and down just like I'm sure on Wall Street, you know, that you know, you're probably going to lose money some days. You'll make money some days Like you know, those things, but it just seems like people don't care on Wall Street. Like you, you have a very, very short leash, depending on who you are probably. It seems like the CEO from Lehman Brothers back in the day had quit the long leash, but it, it's it just it feels like you have such a short leash in Wall Street that the moment you screw up, almost
0: it, you could be gone instantaneously. Well, that was the thing of, that I wrote about the book. Where our department and I was on the high yield the high yield distressed business convertible bonds. I was in that area. It was pretty. It was run pretty tight. But as you described, um, one of the colossal failures of common sense of Lehman Brothers. I mean, this was the third or fourth largest bank in the world and with almost a $700 billion balance sheet. And they really allowed uh, maybe three or four people to roll the dice with about 30% of the net tangible equity of the bank. And uh, you're, you're right. They, they were So part of the firm was like run really, really well in terms of risk. But other, when, we, when we realized, um, I'll never forget around 2008 in the summer, we realized that, um, the bank had become a, what's called a real estate investment trust yes. with a with bank the, yeah, we were the bank on the side. We have 30% of our net tangible equity through commercial real estate investments. I mean, Archstone, Smith, Court of Laws, and a pro- big major property in, in California. And so when I, on will never forget, it was the summer of 2008. Uh, I made a trip up to the Cape and Patrick Robinson, uh, you know, as, as, as a Lehman trader, you have no chance on this planet to get a book out quickly without partnering up with a famous author, right? Okay. So in other words, there's, 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 everyone, everyone's, the biggest question I get on the speaking tour, and you make much more money on the speaking tour than you're writing a book. <laughs> I've done 140 speeches in 16 countries now, and it's the question again is how do you go from trading to to, to actually publishing a book. And the only fast way is to partner up and we split it 50-50 with someone that's established. So it was the summer of Cape Cod. I knew I had in my back pocket uh, the key people at Lehman Brothers. Like we had, it was really a, a, a group within the, of revolutionaries within the bank that were trying to stop the madness. And one by one by one, they were silenced. And at Lehman Brothers, you kept your head down, you did your job, well, you lost both. I mean, it was like, so, so there was this group that was brilliant, uh, senior managing directors on the executive committee that were my close friends. And so summer of 2008, I go up to the Cape. It's July 4th week, and I start to pitch Patrick Robinson. It was um, at, after dinner at the table. And it was about eight or nine people at the table. There's two ladies on the back corner, and uh, they were smiling and laughing as I'm kind of pitching Patrick the deal. Uh, about doing this, and uh, I said, "What's so funny?" And they said, "Oh, it's a Saturday night on Cape Cod, and another asshole's pitching Patrick another book deal <laughs> 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 because he's just coming off a book that sold four million copies." Of course, and uh, so and, and so, I said, "Patrick, I guess I guess that means you're you're taken." He goes, "Lawrence, I'm working on Shimon Perez's memoir." He <laughs> you know, had, had the sugar on the rocks. Of course. I won't, be, I won't be done until 2010. And this is Ju- July 2008. Yeah. And, I'm like, oh. and I looked at the table. This is probably one of the biggest moments of my life. I leaned back and looked at the table, looked every single one of those eight people right in the eye, and I said, if this bank goes down, it'll be bigger than Enron, WorldCom, Adelphia, and General Motors combined. It'll change your lives forever. And I'll never forget Patrick. You know, he's, he looked at me, leaned back in the chair, and he said, Lawrence, by the stroke of midnight, mm-hmm. December 31st, 2008, if she goes down, I'll put everything on hold. You have a deal. And uh, lo and behold, <laughs> I mean, so, so, what it was, it was September 15th, 2008. The bank blows up. It's literally the epicenter of the financial crisis. Blows up the world economy. And uh, I, I get a call from Patrick. He said, Lawrence, you got to get over here tomorrow. I said, Patrick, you're on the other side of the Atlantic By this time, he, he was uh, he a home in England. Okay. And so he, he left the cave and he was over in England. And I'll never forget, I was on the tarmac at Newark Airport the next day or the day after and as the plane's racing down the runway of 50 miles an hour, 100 miles an hour, 80 miles an hour, wheels up, you know, I thought to myself, what the hell am I doing? I mean, i have going to basically change my whole career path. This is dangerous. Yeah. You know, people might try to kill me, but God, dang. I mean, and so, but as the plane banked toward the northeast, I looked through the window and there were some raindrops on there. And I looked down to Times Square and I could see the grand white of Lehman Brothers. And I said to myself, it's time to go pick a fight. Yeah. And, you know, let's bring the unvarnished tale of what really happens to the world. And let's out the bad guys. And, and, and that's, it's, everything changed since that day.
1: Because I was going to ask, you know, Lehman Brothers had already been taken down. I, I don't, unless I missed it in the book. Um, I'm, and I did not know that you were ready to write it before it even happened. Because didn't the collapse really start happening like September or so?
0: Yes, but through the spring and summer, exactly. The, the bank went down um, on September 15, thousand eight. But the we were sure, so. What, we started to see things. Mike Gelbin was incredible. Now yeah. he, he now he founded Exodus Point. It's now a seven billion dollar, eight billion dollar hedge fund. But Mike was in key meetings with us since late two thousand six, early two thousand seven, even here, even early two thousand six. He was basically saying that the leverage inside of Fannie and Freddie was sixty-five to one, yeah. and that, that and the banks were all levered thirty to, you know, thirty-five times to one. Bear Stearns was fifty, not fifty to one. And he would just did the math across the housing market, and so we knew something really bad could happen. And I, when I pitched Patrick in the summer of two thousand eight. I didn't know for sure that if, if she was going to go down, but I wanted to have a kind of a backup plan and prepare. Yeah. And I said, you know, the probability of going down, to, think about the summer of 2008, Countrywide went into the arms of um, Bank of America, and then Fannie and Freddie went into the arms of Treasury. So there was a lot of, like, really big warning signs in the summer when I pitched Patrick, and I think that's probably why he's, bit, he's you know, he, he bit on the deal, so he did it. He saw something, too. I mean, I mean,
1: obviously, I mean, it's... It's crazy. You know, I was in high school at the time. So like as a guy like myself, you don't even really know, I, which is interesting now that I'm kind of love the world of finance and stuff like that. And yeah, I own two restaurants. So I'm kind of intermingled as far as where the economy is constantly and all that stuff. But as a kid, it's, it's interesting how you're kind of enclosed in your own bubble. You, you heard, and you oh, there's a financial crisis in your hand, but it seems like everything's going normally in your life. So it's like, it, it's meaningless. Little, little do we know that, you know, one of the biggest banks in the world is closing and Bear Stearns. Well, Bear Stearns got bought, right? You said? Yeah, exactly. You get yeah. bought
0: in kind of a it was it was failing and then they
1: bailed out. Yes, exactly. I remember watching a documentary on this on Netflix. <laughs> Classic my generation, right? Watching on Netflix. Yeah. But I remember watching a documentary and they were talking about how they how um, they all got to, all the big bank CEOs got together and they were trying to get them to buy uh, Bear Stearns and Lehman Brothers. And then Bear Stearns got taken care of. Lehman Brothers was still they still couldn't figure out everything. Apparently, it seemingly, it seemed as though most of the balance sheet at Lehman Brothers was useless for people. Um, they didn't, it wasn't even worth anything to anyone. And then I, the, their last hitch ever, apparently, was to call Warren Buffett, and Warren Buffett didn't want it either. Um, yeah, yeah. They just,
0: Warren, everybody was calling Warren. So Warren didn't deal with Goldman Sachs. incredible. He does what they call convertible preference, and where he, he takes an equity stake. with GE and Goldman Sachs. He got like eight or nine percent coupon, so that's a quarterly yeah. payment, monthly payment, and then an, uh, what's called an equity warrant component, where he gets upside. All that means is like a call option on, this, on the on the bank. So there's a debt component, he creates his own convertible bond, yeah. And uh, and so a couple of years ago, I got invited to Omaha. Charlie Munger, who's Warren uh, Buffett's yep. right hand man, invited me out there. I'll never forget. We, uh, you know, he's so. Berkshire is probably the, the, the annual meeting, is like the mecca of investing. It's like 30,000 people come to Omaha to, to listen to Buffett and Munger on the stage. And Andrew Ross Sorkin's there, Becky people be from CNBC. And um, Charlie invited me. He'd read the book, he'd read A Colossal Player of Common Sense he wanted to meet me and I didn't know why and it turns out he just hated the lean management team. And uh, he really wanted to kind of know my kind of backstory, but I'll never forget my wife and I got out there and, um, you know, we're, we're sitting there on, on the, in the quest center, which is, you know, just incredible amount of people. It's like, a it's not, it's like a big bad basketball stadium, you know, yeah. like at least you could fit 25,000 people in there, I think. And, um, and so I look around and, and and the QA was going on for about maybe two hours. And I and my, my wife said, Honey, I would like to get some lunch. And I leaned over to the woman next to me. I said, How long does this QA go on for? She goes, Oh, about six hours. And, <laughs> and I look at my wife, I'm getting the death stare. <laughs> and she says, and she says, Oh, uh, you know, I'd really like some, some sushi. I said, you know, she's a New York gal. Sushi were an Omaha, Nebraska. You don't, you don't want sushi. So real quick sorry So the next day we, we have this private meeting with Munger. We go into the Marriott Hotel. In one room, there's Warren Buffett and the Sovereign Wealth Funds. Another room there's Bill Gates and the pension funds. Yeah. And it was incredible. And we so we so are sitting there in this room. I told my wife, I said, you know, Mr. Munger might you know is gonna come in and let's just uh, you know say hi and then I only have like an hour, 40, 30 minutes of demand an hour, whatever it is. And so, and so, so he comes in, uh, we do the handshakes and he he meets her and she's leaving and she says, just, young lady, I want you to know, hardship is good for you. And I said, Mr. Munger, you're one of the richest men in the world. What do you know about hardship? And he said, uh, 1952, he's at his law firm in Los Angeles. There's maybe... 15 lawyers in the firm and on a Wednesday afternoon at three o'clock, nine of them walk out the front door and he looks over to his wife in the middle of the night. And he says, honey, if I lost everything, would you still love me? And she said, I love you, but I sure would miss you. Amonger <laughs> <laughs> was incredible. I mean, he, I'll never, my, fa- my favorite line, he said, Larry, every year you learn, have more and more patience. The toughest thing to toughest thing in the world is to sk- stare at a screen all day and do nothing. So, Pat, as an investor, the key is when you watch CNBC. Remember, these shows are produced to draw people in and really put up good content. But you really, as an investor, you want to sit in the boat, sit in the boat, and wait for those two, three trades a year. You wait for something that really excites you. Wait for wait for wait till a moment when you really have. Uh some edge and you'll get those moments. Uh, but whatever you do, you know, don't over trade, don't do like 20, 30 trades a year. Sit in the boat, trade less, wait for those high conviction moments. And that after all my years and meeting Buffett, moving, I'm sorry, meeting longer and, and learning everything I have over the years, going from my twenties to thirties to now fifties and in investing. If I go back in time, I'd trade less and wait for those high conviction moments, something that excites you.
1: Interesting. So I, the way I've always invested myself and I'm ch- actually changing it right now because I listened to a guy, I'm not sure if you're familiar with him at all, but I'm listening to a, a guy, this, guy pod, this guy's podcast, this guy by the name of Phil Town. Uh, okay. And he, he, you know, he's made money, whatever he, but he, he talks about rule one investing. So he, you know, and, and for those that back at home that don't know what rule one investing, it's Warren's thing is uh, rule one is don't lose money. And rule two is don't forget rule number one. Uh, uh-huh. So. <laughs> I, I like to listen to those types of people because I can't. I just don't spend enough time. I, in my view, I hate gambling. It's uh, I, my, my first uh, day out at the game drafted by the Red Sox, signed for a million dollars in 2012 as a 21-year-old kid. And we were in Lowell, and uh, we were playing a team in Connecticut. I don't remember the name of the word city. It was uh, Norwich, Connecticut. And it was right by Mohegan Sun or whatever the casino is over there
0: on sometimes. <laughs> yeah.
1: So I, went into, I the, went into the casino, you know, this 21 year old kid, you know, big baseball player, you know, whatever, walking into the casino. And I was like, yeah, I'll, I'll go to the roulette table. I don't know. I'm not a poker guy. So go to the roulette table. Let's make some money. Right. So I start doing, I lose $900 in about five minutes.
0: <laughs> and
1: nine, again, I, ha, I mean, even looking back on $900 out of a million is not that big of a deal, but from a, from the kids perspective, which was actually really good for me at the time, I hated it. I, like, walked out of there as if I, like, lost my mother. I could not – I felt so bad about myself. Uh, So I just – I cannot gamble. I just do – just it's not for me. It's like one of the – you know they say about Michael Jordan? He he doesn't love gambling. He's got, like, a a competition problem, as his dad always used to say that. It's it's similar to me. I can't lose. I have to win, and that's a bad way for gambling. Um, So when it comes to investing, I've always done similar stuff where, like – I would buy companies that me and my dad would talk about and all these other different things. Like right now I own uh, Valero and I own a, a Starwood, re, uh, which is, it's a real estate investment trust, but I'm changing. But you're, having, you're having a good week. <laughs> yes, <I am. laughs> but I'm changing my strategy now because, and this is something Warren talks about a lot. I'm sure you would tell me the same thing. And this is what this guy Phil Towns is talking about is like your circle of competence and how, like I sat there and I listened to, it. he's like, you should only invest in what you know, all that good stuff. Right. Yeah. And I'm, there, I'm like, do I really know how Valero makes all its money? Like, I don't know a lot about the oil industry. Like I know that, you know, people probably my, my original trade was that when they shut the, the world down, Valero plumbed in, no one was driving all these good things. I was like, well, when things come back, it will drive again and boom, we'll make more money. And I'm like sitting there, I'm like, that is, I mean, it's true, but it's also, I don't, I don't know everything else about Bolero to be like, oh yeah, I'm going to start buying shares of this company. So I've, I've I'm, it's, I'm switching it up now and I'm trying to be like more in what I know, which in the, in the, in the, um, private sector, the, my restaurants, I know how to run restaurants. So I, I could go into a restaurant theoretically and figure out that stuff, but there's not many, not that I know of these restaurant companies on the stock exchange, uh, but, there are other things, like Apple. I have a fairly good idea what Apple does and all these. I'm sure there's intricacies that I don't know, but I'm just trying to figure it all out as I grow here. And I don't make very much. I bought Valero in, in April. And in oh Starwood, uh, Starwood in May. Uh, yeah. And I haven't touched either of them. I bought a little bit more of Valero when it dipped again, uh, like October or so, or in September. Yeah. And uh, but I haven't touched either of them since. But now I'm changing my whole things. I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't trust myself to know exactly how Valero makes its money. To be like, okay, I want to be in the in the thing. And Warren always says that if something's too difficult for him, he just gets out. He doesn't go in. I think that's where I'm at with Valero. You think that's right?
0: Well, Valero is incredible incredible trading stock to do what you did. The way you're playing it is spot on. Clever, brilliant, it, it, it may be a little bit of luck, but I, I maybe it's just instincts. Maybe it's like trainer instinct, but Jolero is a company that makes money on the crack spread. And uh, so when there's less flying, um, the spreads get pretty narrow. So you're talking about like really nice, refined fuel, like jet fuel, that's and then really dirty fuel. So you've got, all the, on the planet Earth, you've got Western Canada Sour which is the dirtiest, some of the dirtiest fuel in the oil in the world. And it's so difficult to get that product out to the market. and it's so dirty and you know and you've got to refine it and then somehow get it from Western Canada into big cities. So that type of oil might trade, um, and at one point during the, uh, this, this crisis in 2016, I was training less than a case of molson, <laughs> a barrel of oil. <laughs> so Western Canada Sour, so the discount between some of these obscure oils around the world, and there's all different grades of oil. But think about jet fuel. You've got to have some really highly refined product. So what happens is when, when, when you don't fly as many planes and uh, you have a, a global crisis, Companies like Valero are in deep trouble, but thank God, because what the Fed did is they, for the entire energy sector and for the entire free market, they um, they, they they bought so many bonds in the what's called quantitative easing, so they basically kept the, the capital markets wide open. So normally, what happens in a recession is the capital markets shut down. What that means these companies can't roll over their debt. But that means that people don't want to buy, right? Because during a recession, you know, people, the buyers stay back. Yeah, and so so by the Fed, by by doing that, it allowed a lot of these oil companies to extend maturities. So in other words, issue more bonds. People came back to the market to buy paper, and so it allowed companies like Valero to uh, extend their maturities. and And the bottom line is, when those planes come back, and that's what the vaccines are. Bringing. So the probability of those planes coming into the sky in mass has moved up. And number one, it's much more certain now. With that, the, 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 right now we have about we've got about four vaccines, but really about 19, pro, 19 probability channels of vaccines and testing and whole that that'll play out. And and so when you move forward, the um, the amount of, of, of planes that are going to be in the sky by six months then you can just imagine the profits that Valero is going to be sitting on. That's why the stock is up like $20, This you know, since maybe $30. A I mean, it's, like oh, it's doubled since, since the vaccines. I think the stock's up like 60% since the vaccine. Now, a smart thing for you to do now is on half the position, either sell it or um, you know, sell the upside call. So let's just say the stock's, Fifty dollars, sell the March or April or June. Uh, say the stock sixty, sell the seventy call. And yeah. you know now you're the house. Now you're Mohegan Sun. Oh, Ooh, I like the you know Mohegan that. Sun. <laughs> you're letting you're letting all the Robin Hood people come in. Oh, they just read in the newspaper that oil companies are buying now because of vaccines, the late money comes to the table. They want it, they can't afford the stock because it's sixty dollars. Oh, they have to buy the calls, right? This is like. This is the guy coming to the roulette table. <laughs> so, so, so if, if you sell, you can sell him the call. So, the stock sixty bucks. You sell the thoughts to June. Sell the seventy call to June on half your position. You're going to take in number one. You're getting a beautiful dividend. I think around seven eight percent. Yeah. Then you do a call. All of a sudden, you take in another. You're now all of a sudden you've got a ten percent free cash flow yield and on. And you're gonna okay. You're gonna sell half the position, but. If the stock goes up, you you'll get that those shoes will get called away from you, but you still have the other half of the position. So you definitely should do something like that. And right now, after this huge move, wow! I I gotta have you on the show every week. (laughs) (laughs) That is
1: fantastic. Yeah, I would never think to do things like that. But again, I am the I am an amateur. You have many uh, good years. I mean, you called Lehman Brothers failing, so uh, you definitely know more than I would know. Um, but that is, that is so, it's so interesting to see the way, the way everything works from the inside. This is what took me in the book was the things you don't know as an amateur that are happening. It almost gives you, and I think you probably wanted to hit on this in the book and, and you related to me, I promise you the distrust almost like when I'm reading a balance sheet, do I have really any clue what I'm looking at? Like, is this a lie? Are they lying to me? I have no clue. Like, I could have read Lehman Brothers' um, balance sheet back in 08 and probably not picked up on anything. And that's kind of scary for someone who wants to invest their money in the stock market, not having any clue that this might happen and lose all their money.
0: Yes, and it's so important to, to actually at least give a shot to read the balance sheet. Um, when I was writing the book, I reached out to David Einhorn because okay. David Ihorn, a green light capital uh, one of the most brilliant investors the last twenty years, value investor um, in, in a value market. Now we're coming into a value market. Yeah, uh, money managers like Einhorn are going to do extremely well. Whereas, so you've got growth managers and value managers. Is but Einhorn of the, he doesn't he do some big shorts? Uh, well, he's Greenlight Capital, and um, he's in my book because, in, in essence, he was the big short of my book. Okay, that's so what I mean, that's what I mean. he he was short of Lehman Brothers, but. Then you know the big short of the book is also just fantastic and there's a number of other traders in that book. But he he was he not only was short Lehman Brothers, but he was the guy has such courage because he went out to the Irish Sony Conference, which is the biggest conference in all of finance pretty much in the summer, spring of to the spring, spring of two thousand eight. And so the world just pounded the table that this is a streaming uh Oh, near fraud! I mean, he just said counting shenanigans. And one of the things that he told me when, uh, over the years, when, uh, when I'm processing the book a little bit, and one thing I've, I've, I've read about him and knowing him as a person is, you know, when he looks at the balance sheet, you know, he says always count the footnotes. And so, what a lot of these portfolio managers will do is, if you see a, if you see a company like Enron or Lehman, and, and say three, four years ago they had twenty footnotes in the balance sheet. And then two years later, you know, a year, two years go by, and all of a sudden they have 75 or 100 footnotes. It's a sign of obfuscation, right? So Lehman Brothers essentially was doing what's called Repo 105. They were taking $50 billion. And doing a repo transaction, moving it off the balance sheet right before they reported earnings. So when you read the earnings report, you couldn't, you didn't see this. You saw a less levered company. Yeah. And so they do the earnings. All of a sudden, remember, the thing about earnings reports, it's like a snapshot with a camera, right? So they take the picture on the quarter end, and Lehman Brothers has less leverage. Lo and behold, two weeks after the quarter, they do the repo back, and they bring the $50 billion of leverage back onto the balance sheet. And that, it's just classic. And I'm sure they had to expressed that somewhere in there with the footnotes to some extent to say they were doing repo, like a really smart person like David we could figure it out. But... Anybody, just the average person could, could see that there, the expansion of the footnotes. The other, the other great warning sign, and I talk about this on Twitter, uh, and we have a we have our bear trap support, which is our, we have an institutional chat with about 600 institutional investors that around the world, it's called the bear trap support chat. And then we recap that in a chat for retail and advisors. And one of the things we talk about is the convertible bond market. And the convertible bond market if you look back, think about companies when they need to borrow money. They can borrow money from a bank. Uh, they can borrow money from the, the credit markets or the bonds. They can sell a high-yield bond. They can sell a third investment grade. They can sell an investment grade bond. But what happens is with companies like Calpine, I talked about in the book and all these, these companies that have some problems, when, when, when things get a little tight, the last saloon in the credit markets in the world is the convertible bond market. So, what we found over the years is serial convertible bond issuers, companies that you know, don't so much go to the capital markets to issue straight bonds, and they're not obviously they're having a problem with the banks, problem issuing a straight bonds. If they come to the convertible market more than once or twice in a year, so if they're a serial convertible bond issuer, it's incredibly among default. So we found like close to close to 65-70% of the companies that were serial convertible bond issuers file for the, uh, file for bankruptcy. Lehman mm-hmm. was one of the, yeah. Lehman was one of those types of companies. So it's a warning sign. It, it, just it, always watch where companies are borrowing your money.
1: Was well, there uh, you know it begs the question. Are there any companies out there right now that you're looking at
0: <laughs> that might be serial? Uh, well, what's 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 mind blowing is I can list the I have the companies all memorized. But I can list the names of the companies that are serial convertible bond issuers, and the. Chesapeake Energy is a classic one. They just filed bankruptcy. Yeah. in, in Six Flags and in, in Adelphia, communicate, all these companies that filed bankruptcy, Loom and Fannie and Freddie are. But what, what blows me away is the one serial convertible bond issuer that never really that hasn't failed is Tesla. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Now what's what's amazing is that They've, they've, they've done so well in recent you know last like 12 months that they they probably won't issue any more convertibles. But a year and a half ago, two, two, they were they were really desperate and they they got shut off from the straight market, the straight debt. The banks were they, they basically had maxed them out. Tesla, if would, would it wasn't for the Fed keeping the capital markets open and not allowing the business cycle to function, Tesla would have filed bankruptcy at least once, if not twice by now. Yes. But, but but the Fed is not allowing like in 2008 they they did a lot of quantitative easing so they're buying bonds right with the Fed balance sheet and now they're buying corporate bonds so they're they're really not allowing the traditional business cycle to function so Tesla about a year year and a half ago was very desperate for money uh, if you look at where they sold these convertible bonds I mean it was very desperate measures and here and now since then the stock's up. A couple of thousand percent, and uh, they probably have enough money now that they won't they won't uh, issue uh, convertible bond ever again. <laughs> but I still think Tesla is a screaming sell here, if not a definite short from here. I think you're, you're about five hundred and forty dollars. Yeah, well, Elon
1: does things quite differently than than most, it seems. Uh, yeah, when it comes to everything, I mean, he's he's kind of he's like I compare him to. Um, and they actually did this on Twitter. I compare him to Dave Portnoy in the sense that you never know what's going to happen on Twitter, what he's going to say on Twitter, and how it's going to affect the stock market. Um, and Tesla just yes. got recently put into the S and P 500,
0: right? Yeah. So that's another thing. So we did a blog in the summer, and we said if Tesla gets, we said we think Tesla will go in at some point in the next six months. We a lot of people thought they would go in in August, so we said August September. We said no, but we said probably by year end in. There's an extra 30 to 50 billion dollars. This is so evil, right? So you have a stock that is all time high. Passive investing means, like the S and P 500, is a passive index fund, and there's trillions of dollars in there. And so they have to take about 50 50 billion dollars and buy Tesla at the all time high. So they're allowing a company to come in because of Tesla's awful financials. Tesla couldn't enter the S and P at any point in the last ten years. Think about that. Think about that. So investors in the S and P, like your normal pension fund, your normal like insurance company, whatever owns the SP and five hundred, which was the most widely owned index fund around, they could not own a piece of Tesla in the S and P five hundred because the financials were so bad. That's a fact. And now. Uh, Tesla just turned their first profit this summer. They're going to have two consecutive quarters of profit. Now they can go into the S and P at a five hundred billion plus uh, valuation, which is literally really in the top seven companies in the S and P. And so the investors are going to get left holding back here because. Now what you have to do is the S and P has to take fifty billion dollars out. So if they have to sell one or two companies, maybe three or four, they have to sell. No, they probably sell like parts of twenty companies to free up the fifty billion. And then they're going to the index fund, the S and P five hundred, is going to buy Tesla at the all time high at the top of the, at the, the top of the tech market.
1: Well, it seems okay. <laughs> now I'm um, I'm used to this now after reading your book and reading countless other books. I'm used to this now. The, the the in the stock market world, Wall Street making rash decisions. This seems from the layman over here. It, this seems like another rash decision to just after two, they haven't been good for ten years now. Two good quarters and boom, you're in the S and P 500. You're one of the most value, one of the most profitable or most valuable companies in America. It seems aggressive.
0: Yeah, it's the, the way the, the the way the way it works is you have to. There's, there, there are like five or six conditions to get into the S&P. One is profitable for at least two quarters. And, you know, they finally reached that that, that realm. Now, the problem is everybody knows this. And what's happening now is a lot of people have, have been front running. Uh, it's front running. So, in other words, they know the S&P has to come in and buy. So, all the people from Robinhood, you know, they're reading this stuff. I'm sure David uh, probably, uh, talked about this. And so there's a huge crowd of people that are buying the stock to get out in front of the S and P, and so they're running it up, forcing the S, forcing the S and P 500 to buy at higher prices. And it, it's kind of getting out of hand. It's a little bit of a, you know, a little bit of a of a crescendo is about to form because you're you have a bunch of people chasing front running the S and P has to buy, and then after that, like who's going to be left? No, who's the bag holder? Yeah, it's going to be awesome. us. <laughs> I own part of the S and P 500 too. So. <laughs> <Yeah>. uh. <laughs>
1: But so, which brings my next question, and I've been interested to get your perspective on, it because I see you uh, interact and talk about him quite a bit. We just brought him up, Dave Portnoy. As my listeners are quite familiar with Dave, as I've done some stuff with Barstool. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with Jared Carabas at all, but he's the Red Sox guy for Barstool. Yes. So I know I've been over there. I've done stuff, you know, with those guys. Um, What is your? I know I know a little bit because I interact with you on Twitter. So I know a little bit of your take on Dave. But what what do you think is the is the overall
0: view of dave portnoy on wall street well there's two views um anybody with real common sense and really think it through the guy is a marketing genius he's a business managing he's a success he's he's passionate he's hardworking. i mean he puts his heart on the line he you know to build that company what he went through and uh you know, she's an American success story. And the, that's my take. And so it's a little bit like, okay, if you look at Trump, look at Kanye West, there's a, there's a whole bunch of these celebrities out there that over the last like 20, 30 years, Howard Stern, right? Uh, Don Imus. I mean, I grew up with Don Imus. Yeah. There are people that they call they used to call them shock jocks. And it's a brilliant form of marketing. So by, by saying things that are somewhat outrageous, when you have a brand, you will draw attention to that brand and your brand will grow. And so the, the delicate thing is to say something that is on the line, but not too far. Yep. And, and Dave can think of those things in two seconds. And most people probably think of that one twi- once or twice in you know, a life, but he can just, it's like literally a, almost like a trading instinct when it comes to marketing. He can he can think of those things really fast on the fly, and he's constantly creating media alpha. So he's generating millions, he's generating probably, I would say, fifty million dollars of free advertising for himself, Barstool. stool. And that's just priceless. And Trump did the same thing for 30, 40 years. Trump was Trump used go you know, on all these shows, right? On year, even true. on like Howard Stern, even on Dime's show, yeah, and Winfrey like, show. Over and with, yeah, the guys, and that's like you know, no no senator had a chance to beat Trump just because, not because Trump's a nice guy. Uh, he's, you know, he's a really shrewd, really, really tough businessman to some extent, but he just did 30 years of what Dave Part nice And um, Barstool is so successful, and I wish Dave all the best. You know, there are some people on the street that look at Dave and they think, okay, um, he's bringing a lot of novice investors into the market. He's, uh, you know, not too careful with risk being a little bit, you know, by calling out Buffett, he is doing some dangerous things. Uh, so far he's been very right. I think deep down, he probably will dial it back at some point. Maybe he has already. Uh-huh. but I think he's just riding this wave. He knows the Fed's doing 50 billion a month, I'm sorry. I might say 120 billion a month of quantitative easing. So David is smart enough to know how to play that game. And, um, And that's what he's doing. And if you look at his book, he's got a lot of the same types of trades that we've had on in our model portfolio. It was like reflation trades. So he's playing, you know, airlines, he's playing hotels, he's playing things that will benefit from a reflation cycle. And, And he's also playing vaccines. Once again, you bring in those 19 probability channels and uh, so, giving my best, uh, I'm a huge fan. And do you talk to him much? Ever? No, yeah, no.
1: I'm a dude. I I stick with mostly the, the the baseball guys. David, David nowadays, man, like he he travels so much that like he's he's never. In person, he's on the road. It seems like you know ten hours a day doing pizzas. Like he, like this, the pizzas reviews we see are like <laughs> from like months ago. Like they <laughs> you, they they have they have uh you know. You know, they have 40, 50, 60 pizza reviews they haven't even released yet. Like, wow. Yeah, it's, he, he's constantly doing... He's I remember they were talking one time. He's on, he was on the road for uh, six or seven hours just stopping at pizza places, just doing pizza. <laughs> constantly. And I'm just like, you talking about a hard worker. Like you said that. That guy works harder than most do. Uh, and I mean, obviously, his success story t- tells you that he's working harder than most. And he's got, obviously, quite a bit of talent. But I you know, when he... He, you, you talk about the shot stuff, like where he's, you he know, just saying things that are on that border. When he went after, when now we didn't really go after Warren Buffett, but when he talked, when he went and said stuff about Warren Buffett, I was sitting there being like, Dave, you know what the hell you're talking about? And then I realized this is exactly the reaction he wants out of people: is to be like, this, I can't believe this guy said this. And, you know, are you kidding me? Dave Warren Buffett's the greatest investor of all time. Pop ba And he's gonna go on to Dave's Instagram. He go on to Dave's Twitter. He's gonna. Dave is gonna get you know 60, 70, 80 million impressions in one day on his Twitter, on his Instagram, and a barstool, and he's winning. He's winning an yeah. aggressive fashion. And for saying something outlandish, but nothing that's gonna end his career. Just saying that Warren Buffett's old, and you know, yeah. you, you're Warren Buffett. Like, that's all he's saying, and he's he's getting unbelievable amount of hits on barstool because of it. It's brilliant. Yeah, he's, he's a, a one man man show. He, he, I mean, it's he's, he's he's brilliant at what he does. Uh, but the last question I have for you, and I'm, I'm, I've been curious. I talk about this a lot on my podcast, so uh, I, I wanted to have someone who's a little bit more of an expert on this stuff and a little bit more an ex, expert on fiscal economic policy um, to kind of talk about this a little bit uh, as far as how much money is is going into the economy right now, and necessarily, I tweeted something yesterday or two days ago that said that I. I, for, as a small business owner, I want another package, right? I want more money. You know, you guys are going to shut us down again. I got to pay rent over here. Uh, so I need that. But if the capitalist in me, the, the guy who you know, wants America to succeed and be, do all these other things, feels like, you know, we're not doing great things as far as to our economy by pushing trillions and trillions and trillions of dollars into the economy. And I was talking to one of my professors about this back in the summer, because I had finished my degree now that uh, I'm out of baseball. And he worked in the Fed, I forget his name, but he worked in the Fed back during the 08 crisis. And he said that um, at the time, they were nervous about doing what even they did then because they were, and that never been done before in their view, and they were nervous. They weren't going to know the ramifications of this for maybe two, three decades, like the real ramifications of it. And now he said, what we're doing now puts... That's a shame as far as how much more money we're putting in the economy. And we still don't even know how that's going to affect us later on. So I'm curious as to your thoughts on, on how much money is it a good thing. Is it a bad thing they're doing all this? Obviously it's kept businesses afloat, but it, you know, you know, what are the long-term effects here?
0: Well, yeah. So in essence, what they've done is they've looked at the last 120 150 years of capitalism and When you allow the business cycle to fully function, the destruction phase of of capital destruction is pretty violent. And the good thing is you wipe out bad participants Mm -hmm. and you cleanse the market of bad behavior. When you don't, and and that's why you find people like Madoff, right? You find the Madoffs come up and they turn up. If you don't allow the business cycle to function, you will perpetuate bad, very, very, very bad behavior. And that's what's going on now. So the the market is so big in terms of risk that they are afraid to let it function. And so and when Lehman went down, for example, they did you know, 30, 50, 50, 60, maybe 70 billion a month of quantitative easing. And there was, call it 70 billion a month of quantitative easing at the top. And that wasn't for that long a period of time. And then they also did one, about about, about a trillion, a little bit less than a trillion dollars of fiscal balls. So think about your fiscal engine and your monetary engine. Fiscal engine is okay, what is Washington going to Washington do in terms of a bill that provides aid to working families and to businesses, fiscal stimulus, Keynesian economics. Your monetary policy is you know your Milton Freeman is the is the you've got different types of monetarists. You know, your conservative Milton Freeman's and today it's always all, all the way to your Bernanke and your Yellen. Uh, uh you're very creative and aggressive monetarists. And so today the, the the very aggressive monetarists have taken over central banking. So you have monetary policy, fiscal policy. So on the fiscal, year, so you had 10 years ago now, you had a little bit less than a trillion dollar package. Today, that package, the first one that passed was close to $3 trillion on the fiscal side, so three times layman, and now we supposedly have another $700 billion to come, so that would be four times layman on the fiscal side. On the monetary side, they were doing back in the loop, you know, 50 $60, 75000000000 a month of quantitative easing, that's asset purchases that the central bank is making in the marketplace, so pushing up real estate values, buying bonds, buying treasuries. You know, holding down interest rates to accelerate, make it make loans easier for everybody. Um, now they're doing 120 billion a month. So, and so, so if you add up the fiscal and the monetary, you're talking about three or four standard deviations bigger than after the financial crisis when the Lehman went down. In after when I wrote the book, so you're talking about an extremely uh, dangerous thing that uh, they're going to have to try to. If they keep it going, that's great. The stocks just go up, real estate values will go up. But they're doing so much on the fiscal and monetary side. It's very difficult to keep it, keep it going because you have deficit spending, and You have a Fed balance sheet that when I was your age, the Fed balance sheet was $400 billion. Uh, you know, now it's trillions and trillions of dollars. And it's close to seven, eight trillion dollars that the Fed holds assets. Yeah. So it's gone from four hundred billion dollars when I was here maybe three hundred billion to seven trillion, or we're going to be at eight trillion next year. So the Fed is buying a lot of assets to prop, thing, prop things up. So as an investor, you want to treat it like okay, this could go on a little ways, which is great, but you want to be very careful because the moment the Fed just so I'll give you an example. In 2013, the Fed, remember, Lehman went down in 08. And by 2012-13, I had dinner back, back with Jeremy Stein, who was on the Fed. And he, he left the Fed. And he was more conservative. And he, he told me at, at dinner that when they did the first taper, all the taper means is, so if you're doing $120 billion a month, of quantitative easing. At some point, you have to tell the public that you're going to go down to maybe 100 or or down to maybe even $80 a month. But just, just announcing a taper back then blew up the emerging markets, just announcing a taper. And so the dollar strengthened is this where it gets complicated, but when they announced the taper because of what the other central banks in the world are doing, none of the other central banks were tapering. So that basically means the dollar massively appreciated, and it caused many, not a crash, but a definitely a tremendous amount of stress in the emerging markets, and so what investors need to watch right now is the Fed's doing so much. If they pull back just a tiny bit, Jeremy Stein told me that they they literally looked at this press not press release the speech that Bernanke was going to do, and they, they they looked at it, they read it, they changed it like six or seven times, and they said, "Oh, the market can handle this." And lo and behold, when they actually did, when Bernanke delivered the speech, the market could not handle it. And, and so when you're taking away the punch bowls, basically that first message from the Fed that, they, and it's, it's not like, it's not like they were, enemy. they're just starting from like a hundred miles an hour to 80 miles an hour. That's it. Yeah. But just that is enough to crash the market. And so you, you really have to, to watch the central banks like a hawk. Well, it's,
1: it's hard to, I am sure as, as my listeners are probably, you know, I'm sure most of my listeners, unless I don't know them, I guess I don't know them all personally, but uh, a lot of my listeners, I'm sure are amateur investors like myself, it, it's a lot to keep up with, which is why I guess, I mean, you know, Wall Street exists, people are able to make a lot of money when you're able to really dive into it and really kind of have an idea of exactly how it's going. I um, mean, you know, and the, all these other things that are happening, like I said, from a small business owner's perspective, you, know, you want certain things. And then as a capitalist, you're like, well, is this so good? And as I mean, myself, one of my, the biggest metric that I always love looking at is P-E ratio. Uh, yeah. I, I really, I just enjoy... You know, thinking about you know, okay, well, how much, how much further we are ahead here. And it's tough for me to watch PE now, because you know, a lot of people's earnings are have gone down such to such an extent, but we've inflated the market to keep it afloat and all those things. So their their prices are staying similar, and now the PE ratio on on a certain company was twenty, now it's ninety. Because their 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 earnings were, you haven't been keeping up with where the market has stayed because of how much money we put in the economy to keep the market to where it is. Um, it's just
0: it's 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 such an interesting world, the finance world. Yeah, um, you, you you just you just brilliantly laid that out. I mean, the old PEs of when I you know if you read that book up there, Peter Lynch's One Up on Wall Street. I think you mentioned you have it. Yeah, I read it. I read it when I was younger. And you know you can go back and there's certain ratios and valuations that have been highly respected for decades, but now everybody's throwing them out the window because people are just looking at the earnings yield versus the actual price to earnings ratio. They're just looking at okay, where's it's, where's the ten year treasury? The Fed's suppressing it, holding it down at say 75 basis points, which means less than one percent. And they're looking at okay, what's the earnings yield on the company or the dividend, and that's your new valuation because. Forget about PE. It's about now. It's, it's about the earnings yield relative to uh, to, to 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 where the Fed is suppressing ten-year bonds. Yeah, and so that's the new thinking. And so it's uh, it's a little dangerous when you have like millions of investors in a new thinking realm. Yes, it, it that's yeah. It's usually very bad. I remember when I was
1: reading Peter Lynch's thing, he talked about um the metric. One of the metrics he always told you to I uh, did long-term debt or short-term debt divided by long, or long-term minus short-term and divide that by the shares outstanding. And that should give you a, any type of discount it might be at. So wherever that number came out to you, you, you discounted that from the actual share price. And then you had what, it, in his view, it was actually trading at. But with what we've talked about, and what you spoke about, as far as you know those footnotes and taking debt off the books and all that stuff, now it's like you can't even trust what the debt number is you're, you're looking at so now I don't even know if I should use that anymore. It's, it's like this rabbit hole. And, you know, social media is a rabbit hole. The finance world is the biggest rabbit hole I've ever met in my life. Every time you find something, you just want something else. There was someone else out there that's telling you that. Now nah, you can't use that anymore. You got to do it this way. And it's, 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 I'm going to tell you, I said it about four times during the podcast, but it's an
0: absolutely crazy world.
1: Well, my, my favorite
0: quote is um, J.P. Morgan, 1907 said, there's nothing in this world which will so violently distort a man's judgment more than the sight of his neighbor getting rich. <laughs> and I, I I delivered that, I delivered a speech in South Africa uh, was several years back. And this young man stood up at the front row and he said, you know, don't forget, Mr. McDonald, it's the brother-in-law getting rich on Bitcoin. <laughs> and, <laughs> Yeah, but it's like, it's the worst from the brother-in-law. I mean, there were stories that I talked about in my book where, you know, people had like plumbing companies in the room and they were making, you know, a million dollars a year as a plumber and the guy leaves the business to, to, to really just get into real estate development. I mean, that's how crazy it got. It just, and once again, it's, it's violently distorted judgment and that's what happens in markets and, and that's where we, we are crunching right now. So the, And that's what anyway, I think he said it in, Peter, I think
1: Peter said it in his book, Peter, I say by his first name as if I know Peter Lynch. But he, he said it in his book. Um, I think it was his book, but he, it was said that he, the moment you hear um, stock tips at the bar, is the moment you realize that it might, the, the market might not be in a great place. And I'm, you know, at, as a bar owner, I'm there quite frequently. I, I, in this, and this is this kind of market the past, in October a little bit is when it started and it continues now. I'm starting to hear all these guys that didn't even want to touch the stock market. Now, all of a sudden telling me, oh, you know, Pat, what do you think about this one? Well, what do you, are you, are you, you get into, you get into this company. And, and it's not like, hey, let's buy Apple. They're talking about some of these companies that they're bringing to me. And I'm like, well, what's that company do? And they're like, well, I know my buddy told me about it. Uh, you, know, you know how many people bought um, – what's the company that bought Barstool or bought a percentage of Barstool? Yeah, yeah. Penn. Penn Pen you know Gaming. You know how many people bought Penn Gaming in my circle huh? that no. have really have no clue what Pen Gaming does? They're just like, oh, they own Barstool now. And I was like, well, the moment Penn Gaming – Decides that you know they get in trouble. Maybe their balance sheet gets in trouble. Their most valuable asset is probably Barstool. They probably maybe they might sell it off, and now you're stuck with Penn National Gaming stock that is worth nothing to you anymore because you know. And I think it was you that tweeted that, that Barstool actually made up of like you know, less than one percent of what Penn actually makes and, and grosses and annually, and it's like everything yeah. Barstool. Yeah. <laughs> it's, 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 it's,
0: it's, it's, yeah, People like extrapolate. That's one thing you're, you're so right. And people will look at a, a stock and they'll extrapolate, okay, that stock does this, but the company might have three or four other divisions that that are much bigger than what that hyped part of the company does. That can just wipe out your profits, for really example. Yeah, then you got day Day, day trades out there uh-huh. hyping up, hyping up Penn National,
1: which I get, I get that. But it's like you know, you take it in with a grain of salt, and then you go do your research. And I personally, I never did any research on Penn because it just didn't interest me all that much. But, it, you know, it's crazy to me when I'm sitting at this bar and then people are coming up to me with all these different, and I would have been totally okay with it. People were like, hey, let's go buy Apple. Let's go buy Facebook. Because those are the things that, you know, my generation has a fairly good beat on as far as what they do. But they're talking to all these different random companies that I've never heard of in my life. And I'm like, well, you tell me a little bit about the company. What do they do? Oh, well, they got these, these trials for this new drug for, you know, malaria. I'm like, what do you know about malaria, man? Like, what are you talking about? So, listen, I won't keep you anymore. This was this was fantastic. Great to catch up.
0: Great to catch up.
1: Yeah, there's there's only one other person in the history of Grant. I've only been doing this podcast since mm-hmm. um, since uh, August now. Uh, but it, you're only there's only one other person in the history that's last that I've, that I've talked to for this long, and that's Jared Krupp, the guy from Barcelona who does Red Sox stuff. So it's something about the Red Sox people that I talk to. Uh, for more. And by the way, do you know why it's called Sorry We're Closed? I don't know if I've mentioned this to you. No, 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 I do. So no. you'll get a kick out of this because you're a Boston person. Uh, you remember the show Cheers? Of course, yeah. So Cheers about Sam Malone, who's an ex-Red Sox reliever who owns a bar after his playing days. Ex-Red Sox reliever who now owns a bar after his playing days. <laughs> and the last line in the that Sam Malone says in the show, when the person knocks on the window, he goes, Sorry We're Closed. And that's that's how that's how this podcast got its name because we weren't uh-huh. closed at the time because of coronavirus. <laughs> but uh, it's I thought it was a, a clever way. I love the show Cheers, so I decided uh, to go go that route since I am the modern day Sam Malone.
0: Excellent, and you know, best of luck. I hope we hope we get the vaccines coming. Because next year is going to be a phenomenal year for travel, restaurants. Everybody has to get out there and spend, 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 spend. And let's let's get this economy back up and running
1: for the love of God,
0: and spend it yeah, specifically
1: yeah, yeah. at Suku and Hoboken, the sushi <laughs> restaurant in Green Rock at my bar. But again, I appreciate you coming out. If you, I know you, you said you live up in Mass now, right?
0: Well, we have, we've had a place in New York for years. Um, I, I, I summer up there from time to time, and, and um, you know, I go see my my parents on the Cape. Uh, but we, uh, we have a place in Florida, we have a place in Panama, a place in New York, and now I'm, I'm going to stay away from New York for a while, at least until... I mean, now that I think they're shutting out restaurants at 10. <laughs> oh yeah. I'm so 1st pers-
1: I'm in Hoboken, which I'm sure you're familiar with since you've been in New York city plenty. Uh, yeah. So yeah, we're all shutting down at 10 o'clock now. So there's not much to see here, but when this all gets back together, uh, we, and we can live normal lives. When you're, when you're in New York, let me know. I'm sure we'll go grab. some I'll,
0: I'll come and see you in uh, definitely March,
1: April. I appreciate it. Thanks, all right, guys, thanks, thanks for that. listening. My good friend, Larry, we'll have to have you on the show again. This was fantastic. And I got, I could ask you questions for way longer than just the hour that we just did this for. Uh, But if you don't, uh, you know, read the book, A Colossal Failure of Common Sense by Lehman Brothers, phenomenal book. Um, And it's why Larry's on the show, because that's how I was introduced to you. So uh, again, thank you for coming on. Until next time, guys, I'll see you around. Thank you so much for listening to the Sorry We're Closed podcast. Go subscribe to our email chain over at thepatlight.com and follow us on all social media. Until next time, guys, I'll see you at the bar.
0: Sorry, right. we're closed.